The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, May 21st at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the New Testament book of Galatians. If you've been with us, you know that we are taking our time through the end of the spring and summer, and I'll just tell you probably end of the fall to work our way through this fantastic letter that Paul wrote to a collection of churches in the region of Galatia. And as you're getting there, I want to read something to you that I came across this week about this letter in general that was encouraging to me, and I hope it's encouraging to you while you make your way there. It was written by a church historian. His name is Merrill Tenney, Dr. Merrill Tenney. And Tenney wrote this about Galatians. Few books have had a more profound influence on the history of mankind then has this small tract, for such it should be called. Christianity might have been just one more Jewish sect, and the thought of the entire Western world might have been entirely pagan had it never been written. Galatians embodies the germinal teaching on true Christian freedom, which separated Christianity from Judaism and which launched it upon a career of missionary expansion. Galatians was the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation because its teaching of salvation by grace alone became the dominant theme of the preaching of all of the reformers. That was encouraging to me this week. And as I read it and I thought about where we are in the book of Galatians, it reminded me of a story that I think I heard another preacher tell probably 15 years ago. And the way stories work with preachers is you tell them once and you quote them You tell them twice and you refer to someone, by the third time it's your story in your life, right? So I could not remember where this story came from. So all props to Google because I looked the story up and I found out that the story that I was thinking of when I thought about what I just read and the text that we're going to read is indeed a true story and it came from a 1991 edition of the New York Times. Buried deep in the A section of the New York Times in 1991, was a story that started like this. A collector who spent $4 at a Pennsylvania flea market two years ago for a dismal painting because he liked the frame now finds himself in possession of a first printing of the Declaration of Independence. Tim, I'm going to tell us how much you think this thing's going to go for. When he took the frame apart, he found an unspeakably, quote, fresh copy of the Declaration There's been absolutely no restoration and no repair. It was unframed and unbacked. Means it's more expensive. Only seven of the 24 copies were ever unbacked. The article goes on to say that the ink was still wet on this copy when it was first folded. And the very first line in Congress, July 4th, 1776, shows up at the bottom margin in reverse because it was wet when it was folded. It serves as one more proof of the urgency of the founding fathers and the printer, John Dunlop, to get this document out, to disperse this document, the Magna Carta of our nation's freedom. And I tell you that story because I thought about what Dr. Tenney said about Galatians and it holding in germ form the the really Magna Carta of Christian freedom. And the impact that Galatians has had throughout history. And 
I thought about this story because as we come to where we are in the text, there are parts of this text that are interesting. They serve a very real purpose. That's why they're there. But it's like, you know, it's a travel log. Paul goes to Arabia. Paul goes to Lycia. Paul goes to Damascus. Paul goes to Jerusalem. It's, it's not the most exciting of reading. And I thought about that story because where we are in the text what Paul is going to say is he is in some sense building a frame. He's, he's building something appealing that serves a very real purpose. And we're going to try to look and see what the purpose is it serves. But if we peel it back a little bit, we'll find within it a message of explosive freedom that far surpasses anything, even the message of freedom that we find in our Declaration of Independence. And so this morning, I'm going to read it all to you. Verses 11 through 24, we'll see from the beginning What's at stake in what Paul is writing? It's the same thing it's, we've seen every week. And then I'm going to try to show you the frame that he builds in his argument. And we'll look at the message of freedom that's within the argument. That's what we're going to try to do. And I'm going to watch my clock at the same time. All right. Galatians chapter 1, hopefully you're there. Verse 11. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remain with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James and the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. So what is underneath all of this that Paul is trying to build an argument about? Underneath this is the same thing that's been underneath everything as Paul has said and is going to be everything that Paul has said. Underneath this is the truthfulness and the authority of the message of the gospel. What's at stake in what Paul is writing here, we not, shouldn't get confused, isn't simply his reputation. It's the message of the gospel. Grace and peace and freedom is yours through the gracious love of God, by faith in his son. The truth of the gospel is at stake and Paul is now going to build an argument to try to defend the fact that this gospel message, this message of freedom, isn't an invention that came from his mind or the mind of anyone else. It came directly from God. So let's watch him set the stage and then we're gonna look quickly at the argument and then zero in on one piece that if we peel it back, we'll find that message of freedom. Verse 11 Watch this, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. 
So right away, verse 11, you can see that two things are at odds with each other. There's the gospel that Paul preached, and then there's what Paul calls what? Man's gospel. Paul has already clearly explained in different ways the essence of the message, the gospel that he preached, the message that God has made a way for sinners to be reconciled with him, to be forgiven and made right with God. And that salvation comes by the grace of God through faith in Christ alone. That's it. Not only is that message of salvation and freedom a message of grace through faith in Christ, it means in essence, it doesn't matter where you're from or what you've done, there's nothing that you can do to earn that freedom, to earn that forgiveness, and to earn that salvation. And Paul wanted to get that so clear that Paul made it doubly clear to everyone that he preached that this message of freedom was open to both Jews and Gentiles. That's where the rub came with those who showed up in Galatia. See, if you've been with us, you've seen Paul already refer to this group of teachers that when he moved out of the region after preaching the gospel and the church is being established, this group of teachers moved in. And this group of teachers, we're going to talk about them a lot, so I'm going to try to reserve some things throughout the whole thing, but this group of teachers came in and what they began to teach was that, yes, salvation comes through the will of God by faith in Jesus. For Jews, that's awesome. We can accept that message and we can agree with it. They also said that salvation through faith in Christ alone was tolerable for the Gentiles. We could accept it if, if, along with believing that Jesus died in their place for their sins, they became like us and obeyed the law of Moses. If, as we said last week, they allowed the law of Moses to complete in some sense what Christ began. There was one thing specifically that they were harping on with the churches. They would say, yes, it's tolerable for Gentiles to actually be saved by faith in Christ if they became like us, specifically the men, if they were circumcised. You'll find in chapter 6 of Galatians, Paul, in writing about this, which is why I'm going to hold some back because we're going to get there. Paul, in talking about these teachers, he says it's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh that would compel you to be circumcised and only in order that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So there's a message that Paul preached, that salvation was yours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that was open to Jew and Gentile, regardless of where you were born or who you were born to or what you had done. By faith alone in Christ, it was yours. Man's gospel, Paul said, is something that comes in and tries to add anything to that message or ultimately doesn't even deal with that message at all. It says that there is a way for you to do something that will achieve for yourself whatever salvation is in your mind. Because it doesn't even have to be a distortion of the Christian message. Man's gospel is the message that you can have a definitive picture of whatever salvation might be to you and that there is a way in which you can earn that or know that you're on your way towards that. It can have a religious undertone to it. And when I say that, what I'm saying is that every single world religion in the history of man and philosophy to come across the scene apart from Christianity is a version of man's gospel. In it that it says, here is a picture of salvation. However that is defined, here is a picture of salvation and here is how you have to achieve it. It doesn't even have to have a religious sound to it. There are secular versions of it. But if we had time, I would argue the secular version is just as religious as the religious version because it has doctrine, it has dogma, and it requires just as much faith. 
but it paints a picture of whatever salvation may be. It may sound like a particular type of life that could be yours. It may sound like a particular capacity to follow whatever is in your heart, come what may. It could have any pictures of whatever the good life or salvation would be. And then with that come a series of things that you have to do to get there. The sinful heart of man is always wanting to create some system by which we can figure out how it is we are going to earn whatever the picture of salvation is in front of us. I mean, if it were up to us to write the story, it would have to come along with some kind of scorecard or leaderboard that we might be able to see where we are on the way. See, the Bible shows us over and over and over again that underneath it all, the sinful heart of man is absolutely opposed to the message of grace. The message of grace that Paul preached was offensive to the sinful heart of man. It certainly wasn't enjoyable. When we, when we talk about enjoying grace, when we put that on our shirts, when we talk about it with each other, that's an encouragement and that's a battle cry because the sinful heart of man does not find the message of grace enjoyable. It's offensive because the message of grace removes from me any effort of mine to attain whatever it is that's put in front of me. It's freely given to me by God. And Paul says what's at stake here is the understanding of the message of the gospel the one that he preached to them that they had received. These teachers are coming in and they're trying to distort it and change it and it's disturbing the church. So Paul says, you need to understand first and foremost, straight away, verse 12, that I didn't receive this message from any man. No one taught this to me. The apostles didn't send me a book. They didn't send me a podcast to listen to. I didn't go sit in a class somewhere to get all the information. I didn't take what they had said and twist it around to sound like myself so that I could say the same thing. This wasn't any invention of man. Didn't come from my mind, didn't come from their mind. Paul said, you need to understand clearly that this message of grace from God to you through Jesus was received by me through a revelation. A revelation of Jesus Christ himself. I didn't make it up. No man gave it to me. In fact, I love how John Piper says it because it captures the the emotion behind the whole thing. Piper says, Paul was trying to argue that his gospel is not a human concoction. It's not his own private version of something he picked up secondhand from the Jerusalem apostles. It didn't come from his head. I love how he says, he says it came from the heart of God. The message of grace and peace to you by grace through faith in Christ. It comes straight from the heart of God. No man created this. Paul is trying to lay that foundation because these teachers have come in and they've come into these churches and say, oh, I know you heard this message of grace from Paul. Paul got his teaching from those guys in Jerusalem. Paul wasn't one of the 12 apostles. He had to go learn this from someone. So Paul, he went to Jerusalem and the apostles taught him what he told you. He's just communicating their doctrine. And the reason that these teachers are trying to communicate that to the churches in Galatia is simply this, and you've got to understand this. If they can get the churches to believe that Paul is just communicating a message from the men in Jerusalem, then when they show up and say that we've been sent by the apostles in Jerusalem, we're the most recent expression of what they're teaching. What Paul taught you those years ago, it's not what they're teaching anymore. It's been updated. It's been upgraded. We're the mouthpieces of Jerusalem now. This is what's at stake. So that's why Paul is saying, listen, the gospel I preach to you, 
that you received, that you believed. I didn't create it. No one made it up. No man gave it to me. It came by revelation of Jesus Christ himself. The authority and the authenticity behind that message of freedom isn't me. And it's not the 12. It's God himself. And there's so much at stake in that, Paul is going to now try to build an argument to defend that assertion. So he's asserting to the churches that you have indeed believed the true gospel. These jokers are coming in here and they're trying to distort it in your eyes. It's destructive for your life. What you had received is true and now he's going to argue why. And I want to show you the argument and we're not going to dig around in all of it because I want you to see the frame. Because there's one piece of it that we're going to spend our time on. One piece that I think by the grace of God and the work of his spirit this morning could be could be transformative for people in here. Watch the argument that Paul builds now. Verses 13 through 16. Paul paints a picture of the life that he lived before he surrendered to Christ, before Christ changed him. Verses 13 through 16. And what he's basically saying is that there was nothing in my former life that would have ever prepared me to receive or communicate this message of grace. I was zealous not only for the law, but for the traditions of the fathers. I was extremely zealous for the rules about the rules that we had to to live by. The grace of God to me apart from my effort was offensive to me. Not only that, I sought with everything in me to literally obliterate the church. There was nothing about me that would have communicated that this message is anything that I would have ever come up with or created. And not only that, he, he adds a layer to that argument. Verse 16, the second part, and verse 17. After I encountered Christ and Christ absolutely transformed me, I didn't go to Jerusalem. I didn't immediately run up there to Peter and the rest of the apostles and say, now download to me everything I need to know. Give me all the books I need to read. Give me all the things I need to listen to. Tell me what it is I'm supposed to believe. Tell me what it is I'm supposed to say. I didn't go up there. Yes, I did eventually go to Jerusalem. That's what they're telling you. They're telling you that's where I went and that's where I was taught. Yes, I did go there, but I went there three years later. Look at what he says. Three years later, I went to Jerusalem, and guess how long I was there? 15 days. And guess what? I only saw Peter and John, I mean, and John and James. I didn't see all the rest of them. I was only there for 15 days. And as we'll see in a little while, I wasn't there to be taught by them anyway. And not only did I not see all the rest of the 12, all the churches in the region, Jerusalem, Judea, they had heard about me. They had heard the stories about what I was doing. They were frightened about me. But when I was there, I didn't see any of them personally. They couldn't have taught me or instructed me in what I was saying. I was still unknown to them. Paul's saying, I know what they're trying to tell you, but it's simply not true. The argument actually goes into chapter 2, and we're going to deal with it next week specifically because of what he's saying. But he says later on, 14 years later, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem again. But it's not for them to tell me what I'm supposed to do or for me to tell them what they're supposed to say. Together we work out how the gospel is meant to be lived out by God's people and make sure that we're in agreement on everything. That's what begins to happen. So I know these guys want you to believe that what I communicated to you was simply another version, an older version, a point one version of the gospel that the apostles actually taught and now there's a newer version, but they're wrong. They want you to believe that what I said about you, a Gentile, being received by God by grace alone, through faith alone, 
is really just incomplete. That you need to take one more step and fulfill what Moses required to become like us. That's really how you can be sure. Paul says, I know what they're trying to tell you and they're wrong. The message that I preached, it really is that sweet. It really is that good. I didn't make it up. There's no way anyone taught it to me and I certainly wouldn't have come up with it on my own. It came from God himself. His grace really is that good. It's meant to be enjoyed. So Paul is building this argument for trying to to, to establish the authority of the gospel being the word of God and the free grace of God being the essence of the gospel itself. But now what I want to do is I want to look at one piece of that argument, kind of like peeling back that frame, peeling back that painting and finding this message of freedom that's hidden in it. Look down at, at verses 12 and 13. I wanted to spend some time in one little space, and I want, I want to kind of lead us in there. Verses 12 and 13, Paul is, Paul is beginning his argument, right? He's declaring to the churches that he didn't make this up. He didn't create it. No other man did. It came by revelation of God. And when Paul establishes the difference between the gospel that he preached, that he received from God, and this idea of man's gospel, this idea of salvation and how we achieve it apart from what God has done for us in Christ— If you're like me, and I'll tell you how I engage this, I have always engaged this expecting Paul at this point to begin to explain to me how this gospel is different from man's gospel. Right? That's the natural expectation in a logical argument, right? I've said this. They've said this. They're different. Here's how. The expectation is for Paul to begin to outline a a systematic understanding of information or doctrine that makes the gospel that he preached different from man's gospel, right? Is that what he does? That's not what Paul does. Rather than going into a detailed explanation of how the gospel that he received from God that he preached to them is different from man's gospel, The first and primary line of argumentation Paul gives them isn't the information about the gospel itself. It's the power of the gospel to transform a sinner's life. Paul says, exhibit A for the truthfulness of this gospel being a revelation that comes from God by grace alone through faith alone in Christ is me. It's my life. Rather than giving them all the information that they're supposed to believe and understand, rather than showing how A is different from B, Paul says, just look at me. Just look at me. Look at what this has done to me. If there's anything that could explain and show, expose the truthfulness of this message, it's what God has done in me. And I want to slow down and I just want to sit for a minute in what Paul says here. In particular, I think there are some things that Paul is going to say that by the grace of God for you, my prayer all week has been, they'll become electric for you. There are two phrases in this text that have become electric for me this week. They might be different ones for you. But there are two phrases that have just become absolutely technicolor for me this week in a way I've never thought about them. Maybe they'll be the same for you. Maybe there are other ones, but I want to slow down. I want you just to hear what Paul is saying. Verse 13. Here's exhibit A proof that the gospel is the real deal. You've heard of my former life in Judaism. For me this week, that phrase, a former life, 
has become absolutely electric. If I could want you or hope for you to leave this place in love with one or two phrases in this text, this would be one of them. Absolutely in love with the idea of a former life. Because what Paul is saying is that the gospel, the message of God's grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it puts on the table for you the possibility of having a former life. For some people, that's going to be tremendously sweet. Paul is saying, on the table for you right now with the gospel is the possibility of your current life becoming a former life. Of God transforming your current life and it becoming for you a former life. So for us coming in here this morning, what that means is regardless of how you came into this room, and I don't know what God is doing in your mind and in your heart to bring you to a place like this on a Sunday morning like this. I don't know what he's had to do in you to get that to happen. But what Paul is saying here is that the gospel puts on the table for you not only a former life, but very specifically the opportunity for you to leave this place different than you came in. That's what a former life means. And for some of you, there might be someone in here that would come in and if you're honest with yourself, you might say to yourself, I don't know how I ended up here. I'm doing a favor to somebody. I'm just being kind for someone else. I've been to a thousand churches. I've known a hundred thousand Christians, but I think I'm just too far gone. I want you to listen to Paul. Paul said, you've heard of my former life, how I persecuted the church of God violently and, and tried to destroy it. Paul didn't go on Facebook, he didn't go on Instagram, he didn't go on social media and start some kind of smear campaign against the church. Take some time this week, go to Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 26. Listen to the Apostle Paul unpack this phrase a little bit more. You'll find him saying things like, I myself was convinced that I ought to do as many things possible in opposing the name of Jesus. I did that in Jerusalem I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues and I tried to make them blaspheme the name of Jesus and in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. When he couldn't accomplish the end of getting them to blaspheme or getting them arrested and put to death, he chased them to another place. So violently did he seek to persecute the church, John Stott said. He didn't just oppose it. He wanted to stamp it off the face of the earth entirely. Go read in Acts chapter 22 when he explains it. And he talks about going to any length to bind men and women together. It didn't matter. Bind them and take them to jail to have them killed. You may think that you're too far gone. But I heard one pastor talking about this and he said what Paul is doing right here is he is removing from you any opportunity that you could have to say, God can't love me. God can't save me. I've done too much. I've gone too far. I'm beyond the reach of God's grace. He likes other people more than he likes people like me. He would never love someone like me. That message of freedom, that message of forgiveness, that message of salvation, that's for people who haven't done as much as I have. What Paul is saying is God is removing for you the card that you could play 
to say that he's not strong enough or not willing enough or not loving enough to save you. Because if you were going to sit down with the Apostle Paul and you were going to try to play that card with Paul, he would just look you back straight in the eye and say, have you ever decided to have a whole group of people killed simply because they disagreed with you? I did. Lots of times. I ripped mothers and fathers away from their children in front of their kids. Had them bound and dragged to prison. First one in line to vote for him to be put to death. You ever done that? Oh, don't, don't you dare underestimate the power of the grace of God. But some of you come in here and that's not your thing. You've not wondered maybe if you're too far gone or know the darkness that's inside of you and think, well, maybe God just couldn't love you. You've come in here thinking that you've been to all the churches and you've known all the Christians and above all things, you're God's greatest gift to the church. You know how everything should be done and how everybody's not doing it. If it wasn't for you, we'd all get everything wrong. Paul says there's an offer of a former life for you too. Listen to what he says. Verse 14 I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. If you could paint a picture of the most religious person ever to walk the face of the earth, it might be Paul. If you grew up in the church and you did youth group and all those kinds of things, when the teacher called out the place in the Bible that you were supposed to get to, remember those sword drills? Paul could get there first. And his Bible didn't have tabs on it. Yours did, I know. He'd get there first. They ask questions, he knows the answers. And he says all the answers in a certain way so that everyone else in there knows that he knew the answer and they didn't. I've always read this text and when I've read it, I've always lumped into my mind when Paul says that he was zealous, extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers, I've always just thought in my mind, that's Paul's catch-all term for the Old Testament. Like for the Old Testament law, just zealous for the law of God. Well, that's kind of true, but it wasn't until I studied for this that I realized that's not what he's talking about. The word behind that is an actual word that was used for an entirely separate book of rules that grew and was established over the centuries by the rabbis, the scribes, and the Pharisees that were rules about how you were to keep the rules in the Old Testament. It's a secondary book of rules that help you do everything right so that you might keep the first book of rules. And Paul says, I was extremely zealous not only for God's word to his people, I was extremely zealous for all the traditions of our fathers who said, this is how you should do it. Here's how you keep that. So Paul was that person that knew in his mind what everyone else was doing wrong. He was God's gift to the church. He knew how every shirt should change, how every Christian should change. If they didn't change, they were wrong, he was right. So add to Paul's religious zeal and his destruction of the church an absolutely internal destructive self-righteousness and hypocrisy. And why would I say self-righteousness and hypocrisy? Because Paul was capable of justifying his own breaking of the law by his zeal for the law. Paul could justify having people put to death because they disagreed with him because he was zealous for the law. If that's not self-righteous hypocrisy, I don't know what it is. Some people come into places like this really honestly believing they may never use that term, but they are God's gift to the church. You know what everyone else should be doing and how we should be doing differently. But you can't see it in your own life. 
I mean, if I was going to read this like a human, I would say it this way. I imagine in his day, the Apostle Paul didn't get invited to a lot of parties. Paul wasn't at a lot of barbecues. Because ultimately, no one likes to surround themselves with people who think they've got everybody else figured out and know what they should do and what they're not doing, but can't see it themselves. One guy, in writing about this, he, he said, we do this all the time in the church. We find ourselves with this tendency to be harshly judgmental but yet we disguise it under the nuance of spirituality. And ultimately what we're doing is attaching, attaching Jesus' name to our own self-righteousness. And yet we don't see that that's an imminently destructive problem. So what Paul is, is saying here as we're reading it is that regardless of how you come in here, you might come in here thinking you're too far gone and you're doing someone else a favor, or you might come in here thinking that you're God's gift to the church. Paul says on the table is an offer for you of taking your current life and transforming it and making it a former life. You walking out of here new. How? Verse 15. But, arguably the best word in the Bible, certainly the best conjunction. But, when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Notice just real quickly, who's the primary actor in those verses? Yeah, God is. If you listen to what Paul said right before that in talking about his former life, listen for who the primary actor was before. I was zealous. I persecuted I sought to destroy. I was advancing. What happened is God literally flipped the script of Paul's life. Paul is no longer trying to do things for God. Paul is no longer trying to earn something from God. The offer of a former life is yours when you receive from God what he's already done for you. This is what Paul is trying to expose as he shares how the gospel has transformed his life. Friends, if you're a follower of Christ in here, I want you to take some time this week, find a moment to be alone and to sit with what Paul is saying here and to think about what Paul is saying here and to listen to what Eugene Peterson said. He said, your conversion is the act in which your story has received by the grace of God the holy conjunction, but. God acted on your behalf. And Paul explains that as before you were born, before he was born, God set him apart. Paul's salvation, Paul's transformation, your salvation, your transformation, was a prenatal plan of grace. I don't know if you've ever truly considered that for yourself. Paul was not a box on God's to-do list that he had to check one day. You weren't a box on God's to-do list that he had to check one day. You didn't just come in front of the eyes and face of God, slip in right under the wire, and God say, well, I've tolerated you long enough. I guess I'll finally do this for you. God didn't look at Paul and go, well, I'm supposed to do this, so let me do this. Friends, your salvation and your conversion were, in la were not last-minute thoughts in the heart of God. God purposed to set you, to set Paul, to set his people apart 
before you were even born. Paul goes into more detail in this when he writes to the the church in Ephesus. You might be familiar with it. Paul said that God chose us, not him. No, Paul's telling you his story, right? Now he's talking to the church in Ephesus and he says, God chose us. This is our story. This is your story. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus according to the purpose of his will. Friends, what Paul is saying about your salvation and about his salvation is that God chose you long before you ever thought you chose him. It was a prenatal plan of grace for you. That might help somebody this week. It might help you if you think just for a moment about the person writing this and talking to us. Just consider, take some time this week, consider all that Paul had done. Think about all the time. Think about all the emotion. Think about all the intention. Think about all the planning that went into Paul trying to live every moment of his life in a particular way, thinking that he could earn or secure God's favor and God's love. Think about everything that goes into that for him to say that he at one point was a Pharisee of Pharisees, having far excelled everyone else his age within his tradition. And then think about all the emotion and all the intention, all the planning, all the effort, all the time, all the energy that went into trying to violently destroy the church of Jesus Christ with every breath you had. Just think of all of that and then think of God's patience with Paul. God had sealed his grace for Paul before Paul was ever born. And as Paul sought to try to live his life to earn something from God, thinking he was better than everyone else because he could do it better than everyone else, and then seeking to persecute and destroy what he thought was a blasphemy to God, God was patient with him all the way along. Have you ever considered the patience of God towards you in your own salvation? Paul marveled when he thought about the gospel when he begins to build a defense for why the gospel really is true, why it really is sweet, why it really is to be enjoyed, why it really is to be trusted, why it really is from God himself and no man, Paul leans into the fact that God calls us before we were born and is patient with us until the time comes in his plan when he says he calls us by his grace. He had built his entire life establishing a resume resume that he thought was faultless in the face of God. And Paul realized when it came to his salvation and acceptance before God, all of it was filthy rags. God sets us apart and calls us to himself, not based on where you were born, not based on the school you went to, not based on how many Bible verses you memorized as a kid, not based upon how much Bible you read now, not based on who you know and where you go and where you've been, not based on any of that at all, but solely based upon his grace alone. And then Paul says, what might be for me, the second most sweet part of this entire thing, verse 16, how did this happen? God was pleased to reveal his son to me. And this is the crux of the issue right here. Right, we realize that he, he calls us before we were born, that we didn't earn any of this. When we, he calls us to himself, it was solely by his grace. But here's the crux of the issue right here. 
Paul thought he knew everything about Jesus. Don't be confused in this. Paul had heard about Jesus. He had heard about what he taught. He had heard about the church that was believing what Jesus taught. Paul thought everything about Jesus was blasphemous to God. And then God was pleased to reveal Jesus to him. One commentator said Paul to Paul, Jesus was simply a backwater teacher with an accent that wasn't able to get himself out of the middle of a Judeo-Roman conspiracy that left him crucified on a tree with a small band of uneducated fishermen and wailing women running around the region telling stories of his improbable resurrection. Paul knew all about Jesus. In his mind, he knew all of the teaching about Jesus. He just simply would not accept it. In his mind and in his heart, the message that, he, that Jesus proclaimed about grace and peace with God through his life, through his death, through his resurrection was offensive to Paul. But then God was pleased to reveal Jesus to him. Then God revealed the truth of Jesus to Paul in a way Paul could no longer deny and everything changed. Paul will tell the church in Corinth that in that moment, the glory of God in the face of Christ shone bright to me. God removed the veil that had been covering my eyes, that Satan in the darkness of this world puts a veil over our eyes and we can't see this beauty. We can't see this glory in Jesus. This message of grace is offensive. It's not enjoyable until the veil gets removed. And Paul said, it pleased God at this point to reveal Jesus to me. And here's what's been electric for me this week. Maybe it will be for someone in here. Maybe it won't be. I don't know. But I don't know if you've ever thought, for yourself at least, that God takes pleasure in revealing his son to sinners. If you're like me, you probably think more often than not that this is what God does. This is his job. Saving people, however, whatever you want to, however, whatever language you want to use, revealing his son to people, rescuing them, forgiving them, that's what he does. That's his job. Have you ever thought about the joy in the heart of God at revealing his son to you? God is pleased to save you. God derives pleasure in his heart to reveal the truth of his son to you. Joy wells up in the heart of God to take your current life and make it a former life as he reveals the truth of his son to you. God saves you because he loves you and it pleases him to save you. It pleases him to reveal his son to you. Have you ever considered that God was not simply doing his job when he saved you? but that he really loves you and it pleases him to reveal his son to you. As I thought about this even more, I thought about all the ways that I think about those that, that are in my life that I know, my family members or friends who, who don't have a relationship with God, who, who don't know the sweetness of God's grace through Christ. And I thought, why am I not asking him to do the very thing that he's most pleased to do? I mean, let's be honest, when it comes to thinking about telling people about Jesus or, or communicating the gospel, we often don't do it because we think we're going to have to deal with something we can't answer. Someone's got a question that we're not sure of. We get tongue-tied at all the details. What are we supposed to say? What are we not supposed to say? Am I supposed to say this first or that first? 
But do we ever simply realize that all of this ultimately underneath is the work of God by His Spirit in the heart of someone else and that He's pleased to reveal to other people the glory of His Son? What would it look like in your circles of life, your circles of influence, whatever networks and peoples and families you're a part of, what would it look like in the city we live in if the church, not just ours, but just the church in Richmond, actually began to believe that God took pleasure and was overjoyed in revealing his son to people and actually began to ask him to do what brings him pleasure? Like You're not copying out on your responsibility to ask God to reveal his son to someone. It pleases him to do it. Do you get that? Like, I've been in places where people have told me praying like that is copping out on your responsibility. God is pleased to reveal his son to people in such a way that they finally see his glory and grace in the face of his son. Have you ever wondered what makes God happy? Like, what pleases him? Revealing his son to sinners pleases him. And if we think about it even more practically, and it's a whole other sermon, and I know I run the risk of going way too long already. Just notice, maybe at some point this week, that when Paul was talking about his story to the churches, he didn't say, well, here was the moment when I decided I was going to be a Christian. No, God revealed his son to me. As one writer said, the intrusive battering ram of grace collided with me. And God revealed his son to me. If we think about it, that's going to have implications about the way we talk with one another. The way we share our stories with one another. In fact, there's biblical merit for that because in verse 18, where it says that Paul goes to Jerusalem to visit Peter, the word behind visit there is hysterio, the word we get our English word history from. And one commentator, way smarter than myself, which is why I read these things, he said that in the rest of the first century, when you find that word used in the rest of literature, it always carries a friendly or colloquial weight to it, conversational weight. So he said the way that we could interpret that now in our own language is that Peter and Paul sat down and they swapped stories. Paul didn't go to Jerusalem to get Peter to tell him what he was supposed to preach. Paul didn't go to Jerusalem to tell Peter what he was supposed to preach. They sat down and they said, how did he get a hold of you? Not when did you decide to become a Christian? Not when did you decide to follow Jesus? When did he reveal his son to you? How did he get a hold of you? I imagine them, this is something I want to see one day in heaven, but I, I imagine them sitting by a barbecue and just talking Peter, how did he get you? And Peter just said, I was walking on the shores of a Galilee. And well, What about you, Paul? He knocked me off my donkey on the way to Damascus to imprison people and kill them. Peter, the rough, uneducated fisherman, saved by the grace of God, called from before he was born. Paul, the overeducated, sophisticated Pharisee of Pharisees with Roman citizenship. How are you saved? He's pleased to reveal his son to me too. One writer said that in, in understanding what's happening here, you and I need to begin to see that no one's story is better than anyone else's story because for all of us, God does the same thing. He sets us apart for his love. He calls us by his grace. And when the time comes in his perfect plan, he is overjoyed and pleased to reveal his son to you and I, to fulfill the offer of taking a current life and making it a former life. 
Again, Eugene Peterson, so much wiser than I am, can say things so much better than I can say. He said this, and I found it so helpful to me this week. Maybe it'll be helpful to you as we prepare to respond. Peterson said, in the story of a changed life, you need to realize that nothing in your story is wasted. Your former life, whether it be secularism or paganism, or especially, uh, hear this, or especially narcissism, They're all the raw material that God uses in the work of art that is freedom. You don't begin to be in relation to God only at the moment that you become aware of it. God's had plans for you from before you were born. He's never been apart from you. That which took place in the years before you understood Christ's love for you is not rejected, it's to be used. Nothing is wasted in the free life of faith. Now everything is God's. The inferiorities you feel, the inadequacies you sense, the sins you regret, the differences that make you feel like an outsider, these are all included in the story of freedom and are transformed into Christ-affirmed features that express to a watching world the power and glory of God. Nothing's wasted. Why? Because he saves you out of his love for a purpose. That's what Paul would say to the church in Galatia. He was pleased to reveal his son to me. Why? That I might preach this gospel to the Gentiles. Our salvation, our conversion, our redemption, our restoration, it comes with a commission just like Paul's. In fact, Peter will say, and I'll read it to you since it's 11. I didn't read it to the other churches. Peter will say to the church, for you and I, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you weren't a people, but now you're his people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Just like Paul, you and I get to, with our lives, wherever God has placed us, Look for and find ways to simply tell the story. To simply communicate what's been communicated to us. To simply tell the story of how the grace of God got a hold of us. Of how God was pleased to reveal his son to us. We're saved not simply for ourselves. We're saved by the pleasure of God. That everything in our life, the past, the present, the future might be used by God to make much of his son and to make much of his glory. That's our commission, to find ways to say to others what's been proclaimed to us. And I'll try to help you with this the best I can. Lest you think that we, as an organization, as a church, can figure out how to structure certain places and ways for you to do that, don't be mistaken. God has put you in different places in this city for a reason. He's given you certain hobbies that you enjoy and put you around certain people because of them. He's given you certain gifts and talents and jobs that put you around certain people because of them. He's put you in certain neighborhoods for a particular reason so that, like Paul, you get the privilege of proclaiming to other people how God was pleased to reveal his son to you and how the preached message of the gospel truly is the good news of grace and peace from God. It's the true news of freedom. And I honestly believe And it's a whole other sermon. You didn't bring lunch, so I won't go into it. But 
I honestly believe if you and I can begin to shift our perspective on that and see that with this salvation comes this commission and it comes as a privilege from God to be able to share the story to, with others of how God has gotten a hold of us and how other people's life, their current life, can become a former life by the grace of God, I think the epidemic amongst us of boredom and discontentment will go away. I know what it is to be bored with the station that God has me in. I know what it is to wrestle with discontentment in my heart about wishing certain things about my life could be different, of wondering where I went wrong or what I should have done differently for different things to happen. But I honestly think if our perspective begins to shift on what God has done for us and the privilege that he gives us in response to it and the eternal weight of all that begins to set in, I don't think we'll have much problem with boredom and discontentment because he calls us into something so much greater. He gives us the privilege of being part of something so much bigger. Friends, this is the argument at the heart of Paul's letter. He is overwhelmed and overjoyed with the grace of God that comes to us, sinful men and women, and the joy of God in revealing his son to us. Have you ever, have you just ever been awed and marveled that God was pleased to reveal his son to you? If you're honest, do you find yourself underestimating the power of God? to actually save sinful men and women, maybe even yourself? The offer on the table is through the grace of God, by faith alone in Christ alone, it's the offer of a former life, of taking your current life and seeing it transformed by God into a former life. He's calling you to himself by his grace, He's inviting you to turn from your sin and trust in him. He's revealing to you with joy his glory in his son who died in your place for your sins and who was raised by the grace of God in victory over Satan, sin, and death itself. It truly is good news from God that grace and peace with him can be yours. He can be yours and you can be his. And like Paul, you can leave this place with the confidence of a former life by the grace of God. Friends, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to give you a moment to reflect. The musicians will begin to play, and then we'll respond to God's word this morning. And I want to encourage you, if you're a follower of Christ in here this morning, as you prepare to respond to God's word and receive communion, I want you just to maybe take these couple of moments and allow God to remind you of what it was he saved you from, to think of your former life, to think of how he got a hold of you and revealed his son to you as you prepare to take the bread, remembering the body of his son broken for you, and dip it in the cup, remembering the blood of his son poured out for you. Let it be a moment of of sweet remembrance and of sweet joy, knowing he was pleased, pleased to take the material of your life and transform it for his glory and ultimately for your joy. I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll respond. Father, thank you this morning for your words to us through Paul. God, you know exactly what has to be done in each heart in here this morning. Those of us who, who think we're your gift to the church, those of us who think that we're just too far gone from your love. God, you're pleased to reveal your glory and your grace in the person of your son. 
We ask this morning that you would do that by your Holy Spirit in his name, for his glory, for our joy. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.